There's a Chinese proverb that pretty well sums up the powerful legacy that rice carries in world cuisines. It goes, quote, without rice, even the cleverest housewife cannot cook, end quote. And that's a pretty bold statement. But when we pause and reflect that two thirds of our entire planet consumes rice on at least a daily basis, then we start to understand how much cultural and culinary power is contained within a single grain of rice. Today, As We Eat is going to fill our bowls with some history of rice, along with some stories of our favorite rice dishes. Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hi, Lei. Hey, Kim. How are you? I'm doing well. I am so ready to roll into autumn. We are definitely feeling that change in the temperature, change in the weather, and I am starting to dream of yummy fall dishes and some really fun holidays that are coming up. How about you? Oh, fall over here has been absolutely spectacular as well. We've been picking pears and apples in the orchard, so that's been fun. We've canned some pears, and we've actually been starting to do some soups and some things that are a little bit more warming. Yum. Every time autumn rolls around, I think this must be my absolute favorite time of year. And even though I love the spring and I love the summer and I love the winter, there's something really special about the autumn that just makes my heart sing and my stomach growl. One of the things that actually comes to mind with this time of year are some of the really warm, yummy dishes that we can make with rice. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Rice and its dishes are found in really every corner of the earth. The USDA recognizes four main categories of rice, indica, japonica, aromatic, and glutinous. So I just want to set the stage here for our rice discussion. Indica primarily grows in tropical and subtropical regions and accounts for about 75% of the global rice trade. And these rice grains tend to remain separate after cooking, so it's something you might find maybe in a pilaf dish. Alternatively, japonica grows in cooler climates, and this rice tends to remain semi-sticky after cooking, making it really ideal for eating with chopsticks. This type of rice represents about 10% of the global rice trade. As you might guess, aromatics like basmati and jasmine rice classified together due to their natural aromas, and they are both long grain rices. Jasmine rice, which I primarily associate with Thai food, it's a rice from Thailand, has a nice sweet floral fragrance, while my beloved basmati has a really rich nutty aroma. Jasmine and basmati rice, as grown in their countries of origin, actually have protected names, much like the French red label. In the States, we actually know these rices more like jasmine and texmati. Aromatics themselves account for about 10% of the global rice trade. And finally, glutinous rice has nothing to do with gluten found in bread, but it does have a sticky quality when cooked that resembles how gluten proteins bond in dough. Glutinous rice is best known for making rice balls or as wrappers for sweet and savory fillings, and that accounts for 5% of the global rice trade. Even though I didn't major in math, that does add up to 100%. I did count. And without question, rice is an immigration story, especially in the United States. Popular rice-centric dishes like sushi, congee or congee, 
Hopinjan, Paella, Birani, Pilaf, Dosas, Horchata, Risotto, and so much more show how much we've embraced rice as a food commodity. But there is more to rice than just its nutrition. Lay, what can you tell me about rice and its cultural history? Oh, I have some fun stuff coming up, but I just wanted to say that today's topic was suggested to us by my daughter-in-law, Mel Olson, and I have to say I learned so many new and interesting facts, so thank you, Mel, for the suggestion. As you know, I typically take on the historic side of the episode, and I'll give a little bit of history on rice, but one of the things that I found really fascinating in my research was how many gods and rituals there are that are related to rice. So today I thought it would be fun to take a look at a couple of rice gods and some rice rituals. A quick history of rice, and this is going to be super quick. There is so much about rice that we could actually devote an entire season or two to this starchy grain. From an agricultural standpoint, rice is one of the most important grains in the world. As Kim mentioned, it's a staple for more than two-thirds of the world's population. Some sources indicate that the cultivation of rice in Southeast Asia, China, and India happened about 7,000 years ago and in Africa about 3,500 years ago. In a recent archaeological dig in China, bits of rice were unearthed that indicate it was not only being consumed, but cultivated almost 10,000 years ago in the area of Shangshan. Whether it was 7,000 or 10,000 years ago, that's a long time for a single food source to be ingrained in a culture. See what I did there? Kim's love, love of the puns is rubbing off on me. The puns, the puns. <laughs> So as you can imagine, claiming the title of the birthplace of rice holds some serious credibility. It can be a source of national pride. As Dorian Fuller, an archaeobotanist at the University College London says, because rice is embedded within cultural identities within different nations in Asia, everybody wants to have had rice first. It's so important to cultural identity, in fact, that it even has infiltrated itself into the language of several Asian cultures. In Chinese, rice and agriculture are defined as the same word. And if a Chinese person greets you with, have you eaten your rice today? They're not really wanting to know what your breakfast was. He or she's simply asking, how are you? Another expression that denotes the importance of rice is he or she broke the rice bowl, which means somebody either was fired or rejected for a position or a job that they applied for. In Japanese culture, rice is regarded as their mother, and rice farmers are guardians of the culture and countryside. The ritual of throwing rice at bridal couples signifying the wish for abundance, prosperity, and fertility occurs worldwide. And in Indonesia, a woman who doesn't know how to cook rice isn't ready for marriage. Throughout Asian cultures, rice gods abound, and I'd like to introduce you to a couple. The first god is Bolul, the rice deity of the Ifugao in the Philippines. This god is often represented as a couple, symbolizing the union and life cycle of the male and female. And this union helps to enhance the protection from evil spirits as well as the growing cycle of rice. Rice is so important to the culture that there are at least 17 rituals throughout 11 months of the year. There are rituals for bringing in the first rice bundles, sowing rice seeds, transplanting the rice seedlings, when the rice plants first grow their new leaves, protection from pests, 
when the rice plants form grains, harvest, and the list goes on. Now, the Ifagao are very religious. Statues of Balul, which are carved from sandalwood, were seen as guardians of the harvest and were, and were believed to multiply rice yields. So the statues and the gods themselves were extremely important to this culture. Their devotion to their rice gods is fierce, much like that of the Ifagao themselves, who fought against Spanish colonization for over 300 years. Here's a fun, fierce fact. The Ifagao were actually headhunters. Another symbolic rice story comes from Java. Tisnawati, the daughter of a Javanese god, fell head over heels for a mere mortal. The father god, of course, completely disapproved of this coupling and, to punish his starstruck daughter, turns her into a rice stock. Now, I have to say that understanding what an important component rice was to life, at least he had that much respect for her. Once dad's anger dissipated, he started to feel a little guilty that he'd destroyed any happiness that his daughter may have ever experienced. So he did what any good father God would do. He turned the mortal into a rice stock as well. <laughs> and then placed him next to his beloved. You know, like you do. Right, like you do. At first blush, you might think, as I did, hello, dad, why not turn her back into a goddess so that at least they could be together? But what his action actually symbolizes is the triumph of unconditional love over earthly emotions. Not only was dad able to give his daughter her deepest desire, he was also able to give his people a source of life regardless of how he felt about their actions or inactions. And the story is actually reenacted during the rice harvest festivals. And last, I want to introduce you to the seven gods in a grain of rice. They are the gods of earth, water, wind, insects, clouds, sun, and farmers. And mm. each of these elements is essential to creating a grain of rice. This is foundational to the Shinto belief that all things contain souls and gods within them. What I find especially beautiful is the equal importance placed on the farmers as all of the other elements. It really speaks to the humanness of our food as well as the divinity. Through this belief, Japanese children are taught the importance of not wasting food and respecting the process that it takes to bring this food to their tables. The kanji character, guama, and I may have just completely and utterly mispronounced that, and I apologize, but this kanji character is a combination of the number 8, 10, and 8, which equals 88, and that is the number of steps that it takes for a farmer to produce rice. So you can imagine the scorn that you might experience for wasting one grain of rice, let alone many. As Kim mentioned, as cultures migrated, immigrated, or were even enslaved, this prominent food source began to move around the world. One of the places that it landed was in the newly formed country of the United States. So Kim, what can you share with us about the rice culture in the U.S.? Well, Rice's immigration story is synonymous with the growing history in California's Sacramento Valley. Drawn by fabled riches and opportunities of the 1850s California gold rush, immigrants from East Asia, particularly from Cantonese China, came to settle in California, Oregon, and Washington. They brought with them valuable foodways, including rice as a key food staple. As these families put down roots and urban and agricultural communities formed around them, so too did rice agriculture begin to take root in North Central California. 
Now, I'm glossing over a lot of immigration history here. There is actually a lot to the immigration of folks from China, Japan, all over the world, really, but particularly through the portal of the West. And unfortunately, I need to curtail some of that discussion because we don't have all day. But it is a very rich, very sad, very interesting history. There's a lot to know about how the West Coast grew and developed. But I am going to stick with one particular community for now. The story of the settlement of Richvale, California, population 244, is actually an interesting study in the development of California agricultural communities in the early 20th century, a feat often accomplished with some daring do, tricky advertising, and flat-out lying. The story goes that the Richvale Land Company advertised and sold plots of land to wheat farmers in the Midwest. Lush, loam-rich, and ideal for orchards, vineyards, and acres of rolling wheat. The only problem is that the pictures shown to investors featured land in the San Joaquin Valley and was not remotely like the dense Essequan clay soil found in Butte Valley. Some farmers came out to the West Coast to work their property, and once they saw it made a direct U-turn right back to the Midwest, but others stayed and helped to settle Richvale in 1911 into a tiny community consisting of a post office built in 1912, a hotel and church in 1913, and a school and rice growing cooperative in 1914. Turns out that clay soil's ability to retain water made it basically ideal rice paddy conditions and growth along the West Coast with a hungry population eager to have rice as their staple made rice the ideal crop. Just a few country miles away from Richvale is Biggs, California in Butte County, which is home to the California Rice Experiment Station. This station is part of the California Rice Commission, which provides research, conservation, and industry support to the now 2,500 rice growers and handlers in California. And it was from here that CalRose rice was first made available to commercial rice growers in 1948. Growing up in California meant that the majority of the rice eaten at our family meals was CalRose. It's one of the founding California rice varieties, became incredibly popular in the 1970s, and is one of the most recognizable rice brands in the Pacific. It was once so coveted as a luxury item in South Korea that in the 1970s and 80s, there was a black market for CalRose rice smuggled away from U.S. military bases in Korea. Wow. Yeah. It since has decreased in popularity, partly because Korea actually has its own rice varieties and they're just as good, if not better. So it's now it's less of that luxury product that it used to be. But yeah, black market for rice. Today, CalRose comprises approximately 85% of California grown rice. It stands up well to a variety of cooking methods, steaming, baking, pressure cooking, slow cooking, and is best described as soft and slightly sticky with a very mild flavor, making it ideal for dishes with bold flavors like curry or stir fry or anything where you need the grains to stay together like sushi, but not quite like glutinous rice where you really want it to really come together. And growing up, I really mostly remember plain rice that we'd eat alongside a protein and a vegetable. And I'm really grateful that my mom didn't ever seem to buy into that brown rice and vegetables health food fad that was so prevalent in the 80s in California. And that's one of the great ironies about white rice versus brown rice, because even though brown rice is essentially a perfect complex carbohydrate with low fat, low cholesterol, low sodium, and it's a source of eight amino acids, B vitamins, iron, calcium, and fiber, it just doesn't taste as good as white rice. White rice cooks faster, easier to digest. I think that's why it it's basically so popular around the world. 
Speaking of good tasting rice, the other popular rice in my family pantry is basmati. And basmati is a long grain aromatic rice, fairly common in Indian, Pakistani, and Bangladeshi cuisines. In my younger days, we bought it from Indian grocery stores where we bought spices, chutneys, and pickles for homemade Indian and Cape Malay curries. And I love that I can now really find it easily at my grocery store or even at Costco in a 20-pound bag. That might last (laughs) me a couple of months. I use it for all kinds of rice cookery because I love the flavor and texture. And because next to brown rice, it actually has one of the lowest glycemic index measures of all the rices. So it doesn't spike your blood sugar and you can feel satisfied and you don't get the zoomies. Speaking of cooking and rice dishes, my all-time favorite is chicken biryani. My dad cooked one in a cast iron cauldron once and was just bursting with delicious curry flavor and texture. And that set a standard for me for comfort food that has been really difficult to achieve. Lay, what do you like in a rice dish? I am a huge fan of my husband's red beans and rice, which is assuredly not traditional or authentic in any fashion, but it is a super delicious comfort food. And I'd say my second favorite rice dish is rice pudding. Again, oh, warm, yeah. sweet, satiating comfort food. Yeah, that's the great thing about rice, right? It can be savory, it can be sweet, it can be dense, it can be light. It's so versatile. It goes with everything. It does. I mean, even for breakfast, I love some white rice and a fried egg over the top of it. Mm. So simple and so good. So finally, you know how I always tend to find us some kind of weird legal history, right? Yes. Okay, so I've got something fun to share with you. All right, excited to hear. In September of 1997, American company Rice Tech, it's now called Rice Select, and these are the folks that make Texmati rice, which is basmati rice grown in Texas. And remember, we've got the controlled name thing going, so it's not basmati, it's Texmati. They were granted a U.S. patent to secure lines of basmati and basmati-like rice. And this Rice Tech, owned by Prince Hans Adam of Liechtenstein, by the way, faced international outrage over allegations of biropiracy, basically claiming that Rice Tech was stealing the biology of real, authentic basmati rice and staking its own geographical claim in the United States to have its own version of basmati. It's kind of fascinating. And that created an actual brief diplomatic crisis between India and the United States, with India threatening to take it to the World Trade Organization as a violation of the Agreement on Trade-Related Aspects of Intellectual Property Rights, or TRIPS. Now, based in part on this brouhaha and some legal ramifications of it, in 2001, Rice Tech lost or withdrew most of the claims of the patent, including, most importantly, the right to call their rice products basmati, and they were granted instead a limited patent for three strains of rice developed by the company. So what this means is that when you buy capital B basmati rice, you're supposed to be getting rice grown in India, Nepal, Pakistan, very specific regions, very limited production area. If you're eating something with a lowercase b basmati, you are eating effectively sparkling wine of rice. But it is related to, in theory, the strain of rice that produces capital B basmati. Which I just think is really fascinating in terms of like the lengths at which we go to to authenticate and identify. You think food is food. Food is ubiquitous. Mm. And it 
really isn't. Right. We deeply still care about where it comes from, about identifing where it comes from and staking claim to, as you had said earlier, being the birthplace of rice. It's a very right. profound, important thing. And folks want to make sure that they keep their claim to it. That is fascinating. And it brought up something for me that we may have to do in the next season, not the season after this, but the season after that one, <laughs> counterfeit foods. Yes. Like you said, it's so important for us to have that authenticity, that provenance of the food that there are companies, there are individuals who counterfeit all manner of foods. Yeah. I had this huge discussion in the car, which is where all of our great conversations take place with my husband about counterfeit foods. Because remember when we were talking about jams, jellies, and marmalades, there was that case, that U.S. Right. Supreme Court case yeah. about the counterfeit jelly and what actually constituted it. And that ruling became precedent for several other cases about what was authentic something versus what was counterfeit something. And my point to my husband was, if you don't have those definitions, then I can call something whatever I want to. Mm -hmm. And in reality, it's not that, but you're confusing your consumer. And there's meant to be some level of consumer right. protection and all this, like that when you buy basmati rice, you know, you're getting capital B basmati from India and not lowercase b basmati from Texas. Right. So, yeah, this is fascinating. All these things mean something. And this points again for the millionth time to the value that we place on food mm -hmm. and its quality and its provenance. Absolutely. We really hope that you enjoyed this listener suggested topic. And there are two episodes that I thought you might enjoy that cover other grains. And those are episode 20, Grain Empires, The Wheat Belt, American Innovation, and A Kitchen Confidant. And episode 47, Start to Finish, Dough Does It All. Kim, do you have any other episode suggestions that our listeners may enjoy related to grains? Yeah, I sure do. One thing I did not go into depth in is Carolina gold rice. I'm fascinated by this strain. It's an heirloom strain of rice. It's something that used to be one of the big halves of Hop and John. And we talked about it pretty extensively in episode seven on New Year's Day and New Year's Eve traditions. And so I'd like to suggest that our friends tune into that episode to hear more about this really special heirloom rice that used to be grown in Louisiana, it's starting to make a little bit of a comeback. I also like to recommend that our friends check out episode 46 on jams, jellies and marmalades and conserves. If you haven't already, that is where we start talking about the counterfeit foods and that Supreme Court case ruling. Tune into that to get a head start on a future episode where we talk about counterfeit foods. Yes. Love that idea. <laughs> For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com, follow us on Instagram at asweeat, and join our family recipes, traditions, and food lore community on Facebook. And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you could step away from the sushi for a couple of minutes and rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser or Spotify, we would really be appreciative. This really helps those crazy content robots know that you enjoy the show and hopefully they'll do their robot thing and recommend it to other food enthusiasts. We also publish the As We Eat Journal on Substack. We'd be so honored if you would support us by becoming a subscriber. We take tasty side trips through vintage recipes, community cookbooks, discovery dishes, and travel stops. There are three subscription tiers, and we're sure you're going to find one that's perfect for you at asweeat.substack.com.
You've been listening to the As We Eat podcast, part of our curiosity-driven project serving up how food connects, defines, and inspires by blending a bit of research and a dash of humor. Ba-da-da-da-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-